Hey, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Great. Good to see you guys this morning. Great to have you. Hey, um, my name is Tim Rogers. I'm lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Thank you all for being here and for being here for breakfast. For many of you, that was great for us to get started on uh, a good note that way and to get a feel for electives and what's coming up that way. Thank you, uh, Derek, for leading us through a bunch of things that are going on in and around Grace Point Church this morning. Worship team for leading us. Great time. Uh, You should know, yes, I am part of this uh, Nashville team that's heading out Friday, meaning I will not be here next Sunday. I'm looking forward to hearing when I'm back uh, what Dr. Ed Sherman has to say. I want you to know that Dr. Ed Sherman from Lancaster Bible College will be here speaking next week. A great fella. He was here a year ago, I believe it is, um, for Adult Vacation Bible School and spoke to our adult class at that point. Dr. Sherman is um, involved in the World Missions Movement at Lancaster Bible College and is involved in heading up a number of their short-term teams and efforts, as well as, of course, teaching capacity there. So look forward to having Dr. Sherman here next week. Good fellow, and looking forward to what he has to say to us. All right? Well, this morning you have found us in part four of a six-part series that we are calling Fearless. Caught in the Stare Down is our subtitle. And if you've been here, you also know this, that we are not actually promoting fearless as much as fear less, all right, which is just a little play on words, but meaning that we know it is not wise to be someone who has no fear and that we can't actually live that way or else we would run through every red light and every stop sign and we put our hand on every hot stove that there is, that that fear keeps us from doing some things that are dumb and unsafe and risky, and and that's good. Fear can teach us wisdom, but we are in the series in which we're trying to encourage you to fear just a little bit less, all right? Another way to look at it is trust a little bit more, but trust more doesn't fit on the slide as well as fear less. And so we went with fear less instead of trust more, okay? But that's the idea behind the series is we just want to encourage you in certain moments that you will find yourself in in life to fear a little bit less. And it's not just our idea or my idea to say, let's just talk about fear, although that's a good topic to talk about. Rather, we're looking at an Old Testament character named Daniel, a a man who actually lived on this planet and who actually you know, was born, grew up, had an incredible life and died. And we're looking back in his life in the Bible and asking, what can we learn from this guy, from this fellow whose story is written about in the Bible? And one of the abiding themes from Daniel is that he was put in a number of circumstances over and over and over again, where there was honestly just a big moment in his life. There was a big moment and the, the light shone bright on him, and he, he had to choose regularly this issue of fear or courage. Fear or courage, what do I do? And really, for him, the question is, how big is my God that I serve? And am I going to trust a little bit more or fear a little bit more? So this is kind of the framework for our series. Now, if you were here last week, we took a little diversion from Daniel, and we went to his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's great. So all the church people were able to repeat that. If you are not knowing who that is, you've just been informed by your church friends here that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, flannel graph characters that we pulled off the flannel graph from Sunday school years and talked about three men who had a tough decision to make whether they were going to bow down to this uh, image that the king had made. And we talked about that image actually representing all of Babylonian culture and values and ethos rather than that simply being a bow down and worship me as the king. And we talked about last week how we tend to make decisions and then those decisions make us, right? 
that I make a decision and that decision makes me. When I decide to, to eat this, that makes me become this, right? When I decide to stop doing this, that makes me become this. So I make a decision, that decision makes me. And then we also talked about with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we tend to drift, just as we, we tend to drift towards what's easy. We tend to drift toward what's easy because we just don't like to do hard things. And then we talked about the irony that as we stop and look at life, that the, the hardest times in our life have been actually the most beneficial, ironically, not the easiest times, because the hardest times have been the ones that have taught us the most about who we are and who our God is. So we talked about that kind of juxtaposition or that contrast of the reality that we drift to easy things, but in truth, the hard things are the best teachers for us. Right? And that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This week, we jump right back into Daniel, and we're, we're going to try to learn one more thing from Daniel. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel, if you don't have a Bible with you or don't own one, there should be a red Bible in the pew right around you. We invite you to turn to Daniel. One of the easiest ways to get there is in the opening of your Bible, in the, the first couple pages, you'll find something we call the table of contents that will, that will lay out for you where all these books in the Bible are. Daniel is in what we call the Old Testament, not the New. That's going to be your, your first half of the Bible, essentially, is where Daniel will be found. Um, as you're paging through, you might find the Psalms. It's a big section right in the middle. Keep going to your right, and you'll find uh, some of what we call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You'll, you'll land somewhere around Ezekiel, and then you'll be like, where am I? Then you'll find Daniel if you keep going, right? So that's Daniel. So, so jump on to Jan Daniel chapter 4, and we'll get there in just a moment. But I want to set it up this way. Um, where we're at with Daniel this week, um, have you... <laughs> Daniel's uh, experience this week in Daniel chapter 4, as, as I was reviewing this and kind of getting ready and thinking about this, the best way for me to describe it, the best words I could find to describe Daniel's experience this week is really that Daniel is having what I call a moment of truth, a moment of truth in his life, a moment where he, has, he is faced with, am I going to speak the truth when speaking the truth will cost me something dearly? Am I going to speak the truth when, when doing so will actually cost me quite a bit? Daniel's having one of those moments. Now, Daniel's moment is going to look very differently than yours and mine. Daniel's moment is, is unique in the story of history, and, and none of us are in the Babylonian Empire, right? None of us are before a king. None of us are going to have a moment of truth like that. But isn't it true that we all have had moments like that? And isn't it true that we all will have moments like that? And isn't it true that as you're getting older as a parent and grandparent, that you will look back on your children and your grandchildren and you will know before they know that they're going to have certain moments in their lives which are going to require something from them. You might call it a moment of truth. In other words, when they're, when they're dating, right? And the, and the boyfriend asks at the end of a good night together, hey, you want to come in for a couple minutes? And you know what that means, right? Because you're a parent and you've been there, and you're a grandparent, you've been there. And you just hope that your daughter, your granddaughter can see and understand what he means by that. In that moment, say the right thing and do the right thing, even though saying or doing the right thing might cost her a lot in terms of that relationship. Right? And, and you know, because you've been there, when moments of truth exist in your workplace, where you know that there's conversation with your fellow employees about the boss or whatever. There's, there's ethical issues and you just know it and your company knows it, your, your coworkers know it, but no one talks about it. Because if you were to talk about it, you're not coming to work tomorrow. 
You want a job or you want to tell the truth? We don't talk about the stuff that goes on. It's just a little, little mm, edgy, a little bit off the books. I mean, a little bit maybe not quite right. We, you don't talk about that because if you do, it will cost you too much. It's a moment, it's a moment of truth. You've probably seen it and you have people in your family probably who've, who've gone off to college and they interact with their freshman uh, philosophy professor, their freshman English teacher, someone who, who in a classroom setting in a lecture hall will, will ultimately just tear down the roots of Christianity and say that, you know, who in the world, who in this class still after this presentation could possibly hold to the authenticity of a historic Christianity? As if it's such a foolish thing to do. And you would hope that your daughter, your son, your grandson, your, your granddaughter will be able to say in that moment of truth, that even though it might cost them something, that they could engage in that moment and step into that and say, this is my faith. This is what I believe. Let me talk about it. And step up rather than step back. See, those moments of truth, not just are you going to tell the truth when it doesn't cost you much, but rather what will you do when the light shines so bright on you that speaking the truth will cost you in your relationships, in your money, in your career, in your faith, what will you and I do? And this is the issue that Daniel is facing because the language that we're going to see for Daniel is, in this moment, Daniel is, and we're going to see it in the text, the word will say, terrified. He's terrified of what he has to say. He's terrified of the thoughts that are in his mind because he knows that what he has to say can cost him dearly, will cost him his own life, potentially. And he knows that. So the question for you and for me is when those moments come, right, when the moment is bright and the, the, the spotlight is on you, what are we going to do when we know that speaking the truth in a loving way is going to cost you, is going to cost me something? What do we do? All right, this is Daniel's event, Daniel's story here in Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, let's check it out. Daniel chapter 4. We begin, this is a unique section of scripture actually written by what we would call a, a pagan king. And it's kind of weird if you think about that, that we're now looking at the Bible and we're reading a section of, of scripture that we believe is written by a, a king who would not ultimately confess faith in this God that he talks about. Um, we're not judges of the heart, but in all of King Nebuchadnezzar's background, we don't see that happening for him. So verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, so he's writing, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid and as I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. And so I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. So finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. And then he adds this little parenthesis. By the way, he's called Belteshazzar 
after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. How's that for a reputation? Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones, declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. All right, pause it there for a minute. And so here's the moment for Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar has already said to him, you're the, <laughs> you're the chief magician. I called you because no one else can do this, so, so I trust you, Daniel, bring it. Now let me ask you, how in the world is Daniel, uh, excuse me, is, is, Belta, uh, is Nebuchadnezzar going to know if Daniel is telling him the truth? This is amazing to think about. He, I, there's no way for Nebuchadnezzar to know for sure that what Daniel is about to tell him is going to be true, Right? There's, there's nothing to check it on. In other words, he's putting all the eggs in the Daniel basket. I'm going to trust you with this because I don't know what it means. There's no other magician who can corroborate what you're saying. There's no other research I can do to prove if you're lying to me, you're telling me the truth. I'm just trusting you, and I'm asking you, whatever you tell me, I'm going I'm to take. And so if you're Daniel, and you know that the interpretation of this dream is not going to be good, and you know that this king just had a temper in Daniel chapter 3 and just threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, and you have an interpretation for this dream that you think is right but hard, and you're serving a king who gets angry easily, what are you going to do when telling the truth might cost you something dearly, including your own life? And so here's Daniel, and we see it in verse 19, and King Nebuchadnezzar sees it on his face, the anxiety and the fear in him. Verse 19, then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. We don't know how long that was, but evidently it wasn't that he left his presence days upon days, but rather in this moment of 
probably quiet thinking and processing. He was perplexed. And his thoughts, here's our word, terrified him. And I want you to feel that for Daniel, that, that these thoughts he was having terrified him. That word is chosen intentionally. That this was a, a deeply fearful moment for our great Daniel. This was a moment of great fear for him, of great anxiety, of great wonder. Like if I tell the king what I'm thinking and what I believe this is, this could go really badly for me in a hurry. Like it is not going to help me at all to tell him the truth. He's not going to lavish gold upon me here. I'm not going to get a promotion, right? I mean, the only thing really that could come out of this are bad things, both for him and for me, right, for the entire kingdom. There's really actually nothing good that can come from me telling the truth here. If I just look at it at that level, Daniel's terrified. And so the king, seeing that on his face, says, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. In other words, I see that you're worried. You don't want to tell me, do you? Let me put you at ease. I'm not going to throw you in the furnace, all right? It didn't work for those guys. It probably won't work for you. So just tell me the truth, all right? So Belteshazzar, Daniel replies, verse 19, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves, which grew large and strong, uh, excuse me, an abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You become great and strong, and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, the holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone that he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, King, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Amazing. Uh, amazing interaction. Uh, number one, Daniel could have said anything he wanted, right? There's no way to check about what he said, whether that's going to be true or not. Number two, in the middle of, of moving from that terrified state to telling him the truth, Daniel even goes further. And it's almost like he's like, well, if I'm already telling you the truth, I may as well go further. And that is not only am I going to tell you what is happening, but I, O king, as someone who is reporting to you, I am now going to recommend to you what you should do. You didn't ask me for that, but I'm going to tell you. Now, O king, and he says in verse 27, be pleased to accept my advice. In other words, you didn't ask for this, but be pleased to accept it. I am going to give you advice. I'm telling you the truth, and in love and in care for your future, I'm going to tell you something to do now that can help you in the future that you may not even want to hear but is true. And that is renounce your sins by doing what is right. How well does that go over for the king? <laughs> Renounce your sins, O king, by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind. It may be then that your prosperity 
will continue, possibly continue. So King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have a record of how he responds to this um, immediately to Daniel. But we do know that in the next year, he does practically nothing. And we also know that God's uh, deliverance on his promise here through this vision doesn't happen immediately. There's a period of time, 12 months, a year that goes on between verse 27 and verses 28 and 29. So check it out. Pick it up in 28 and 29 with me. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar is a summary statement in verse 29. A year later, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, I want you to understand um, how amazing this place was that, that King Nebuchadnezzar had built because he's coming out and he's viewing, if you can imagine for a moment, he's viewing all of what he can see with his eyes uh, of Babylon that he has made and he knows that his reign goes beyond that. But here is just historically what it would look like. And so kind of put yourself in, in the shoes here of, of Nebuchadnezzar walking out under the roof of his royal palace. And you've probably done that if you've been at a, at a cabin or you've gone camping even or you've gone to a, uh, you know, a, a vacation home somewhere or whatever it is and you just take in the scenery, take in the moment of the beauty of what you see around you. And you probably don't think, man, isn't this great that I made this? But what if you did? What if you built it all? And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. And here's what he would have seen. And, and here's... Uh, Here's the background. So he comes out and, and he, the palace on which he's on, in which he surveyed Babylon, was one of uh, the citadels or the main areas of the, on the north side of the city. It had large courts, reception rooms, it had a throne room, residences, and the famous hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had a vaulted terraced structure with an elaborate water supply for all the trees and the plants built by Nebuchadnezzar for his Median queen. From his palace, he would see in the distance the city's 27-kilometer outer double wall, which he had built, 27 kilometers double wall. His palace stood just inside of the double wall of that city, which was punctuated by eight gates and encircled by an, an area three kilometers by one kilometer with the Euphrates River running through it. The palace adjoined a processional avenue that Nebuchadnezzar had paved with limestone and decorated with lion figures, emblematic of Ishtar, one of their gods. This avenue through the city, through the Ishtar Gate, which was decorated with dragons and bulls. They were emblems of Marduk and Bel, the Babylonian gods. Bel, by the way, would be Belteshazzar, the short name for Belteshazzar, which Daniel was named after. It continued south through the city to the most important sacred precincts um, to whose beautifying and development Nebuchadnezzar had contributed. This uh, temple, or ziggurat as they called it then, crowned by a temple of Marduk where the god statue resided. And in the temple there were shrines to other gods and the city temples uh, of other Babylonian gods restored or beautified by Nebuchadnezzar. So everywhere he looked, there was worship, there was um, wealth, there were... Um, ingenious, creative, beautiful designs that he had made and that he, as he looked out on all that he had made, he's like, man, I'm good. I'm good. I mean, what, what can I say? Look at all this. Look at all this. And as the words were on his lips in verse 31, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you, and you'll be driven from people and will live with the wild animals. And this gets weird, all right? This is, just, this is weird. There's weird things in the Bible, and this is one of them. You will eat grass like cattle, 
Seven times will pass by for you before you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone that he wishes. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward him and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing and he does what as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Okay. This is about the third time that Nebuchadnezzar has this lesson taught to him about the, the greatness of the, the king uh, of heaven compared to his power and strength. And this is strange. Um, there is historically a, a seven-year section of King Nebuchadnezzar's, king Nebuchadnezzar's reign that is silent in terms of the wars that is fought. And so we believe that historically that this moment fits there within Nebuchadnezzar's reign. All right? Archaeologists have that data. We have that that scientific data, if you will. There's a seven-year silent period in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Um, the other reality is, and this is strange, there's actually mental disorders called, uh, I think it's zoanth- zoanthropy and boanthropy, all right? Zoanthropy means you act like an animal, you actually act like an animal, and boanthropy means that you actually think you're an ox. Don't use that on somebody, all right? You're, you're a little boanthropotic on me. I mean, that, that's not gonna that's not gonna work too well. But these are actual mental disorders that are diagnosable now. Okay, kind of strange, but realities. And so we believe something like this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and that God drew that and put that on him as part of his his own pride um, to, to move him in this direction. The big picture that I want to take from this, really, as we look at this story. We can certainly learn from the pride and arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar, and there's a lesson to be had there. But as we look at it from our vantage point, from our angle of Daniel, of the role that Daniel played in this, that's where I want to pause. That's where I want to look for just another moment with you. The moment that Daniel had, where he is asked, and the spotlight is on him, in the moment of truth, here's my dream, now you interpret it for me. And he knew immediately that it was going to be bad news, and he's terrified of saying the right thing. He's terrified. He's afraid of the consequences. He's afraid of what will happen to him. He's afraid of losing relationships, right? He's afraid of losing his job. And truthfully, he's just probably afraid of losing his life in that moment, right? It's just probably that simple. And so in those moments, I want to speak to us on that because those are moments that we share. The feeling in those moments are moments that we, we share. And so I want to talk about that just for a minute. Let me, let me be clear about what I am saying and what I'm not saying. Um, what, I don't, what, what I'm not saying this morning is... Um, this is not a message about um, make sure that you share your opinions that you have with everybody all the time. Okay? There are some opinions that I have and some opinions that you have that we should not just share all the time because we think it's right to do. You know, there, there are personal opinions we have. We just have to be careful how to guard them. What I'm speaking about is there are some things that you probably know that you should say or do, and they're just right in front of you. And for one reason or another, you're afraid to do them. There are conversations that you know that you need to have that for one reason or another, you just haven't had them because you're afraid of what will happen if you do. 
because the cost of saying or doing what is right seems a little bit too high a cost to pay. That's what I'm speaking to this morning. This is not an invitation for everybody to share everybody's opinion and preference with everybody else and say, hey, you know, I have a right to, to be a fool because Tim said you know, we should just tell everybody everything we're thinking. That's, that's not what I'm saying. A couple things I want us to think about and focus on this morning. At Grace Point Church, one of our leading values that we talk about is this value right here, that we want to be people who live fearlessly, forgive generously, and speak openly. And it may be that we don't talk about this enough, but to me, this is one of the critical components of how in the world do we work together relationally as a people here? How do we function well in relationship to one another? What does it look like to have relationships with each other when times get difficult where we can come through that, honoring, respecting, and loving each other no matter what? What does it mean in that context to live fearlessly, forgive generously, and speak openly? And so here's what we say. I just want to press into this for a minute. This idea of living fearlessly, again, living with a little less fear. The fear that's within us is, I love people too much around here. I I want everyone to be happy. I want everything to kind of stay the way it is and be in relationship well with one another. I don't want to mix up the pot at all. I want to just make sure that my highest value is that we care for for the fact that we want to keep everything kind of together because we love the people who are here. And and I I get that, I'm for that. But living fearlessly says, listen, there's something more than that. There's something more than that. And there's this idea that we need to be willing to be people who speak openly and forgive generously. So by forgive generously, I mean this. When, not if, when we offend each other, when I offend you, when you offend me, that there is this default behavior we have, this default reality that we have, that we are people who forgive well and forgive generously. And the question is, how many times should we forgive? How many times should we forgive? I think Jesus said something like that to to Peter sometime, didn't he? And Peter asked, how many times should we forgive, Lord? And he says, seven times? I mean, really think about that. Forgiving somebody seven times for the same offense is actually a lot. It's amazing to do. And Jesus goes on, he says, no, 70 times whatever your best is. 70 times that. In other words, I want you to be people who, when they call themselves Christian, when offended by one another, when hurt, from one another, are people of forgiveness and generous forgiveness. Because offenses will happen and will take place. And it will always cost you to forgive. It will always cost me to forgive. But we need to be people of generous, generous, generous forgiveness. And in that context of being people who believe the best about one another, not the worst about one another, but being people who forgive generously, we also then have to be people who are willing to speak openly speak clearly about what we see. So the speaking openly, meaning, okay, there is something going on that I see. There is something that I feel like, hmm, this is happening, and I don't know if I really get it. So let's speak openly to one another in that process, that I respect the relationship well enough to do that, to speak openly. So we talk about this at Grace Point Church. What is it going to cost you in that moment of truth to say, this is a moment of truth, for you. This is a moment of truth for me. I want to be part of a people who say, hey, I forgive generously. That's my posture. That's my default toward one another. I speak openly. 
And I live fearlessly in that process because this is how we relate well. Now, with that being said, here's, here's the reality. That moments of truth come suddenly on us, don't they? Moments of truth come suddenly. These, these spotlight moments come quickly. You know, come back to that story, you know, early on, the instances early on of, you know, at the end of a date night or something like that, and someone asks, hey, you want to come in? Or, or your boss comes by, and you know that something wasn't quite done right, and you're kind of in the crosshairs of, do you report it and say something or not? Or, you know, there's something going on in your family dynamic, and you're like, eh, now's the moment to speak or forever hold my peace. And the moment comes and passes, and you're done with it. Moments of truth come quickly, and they come suddenly. They came suddenly for Daniel, where, where the king says to Daniel, hey, I, I, I want you to know. Tell me what's going on. And Daniel didn't really have time to prep for that. He just has to respond. He just had to respond right out of that. So here's what I want to say about that. A very practical reality, that if we're not able to speak the truth now to one another and to, to each other, we can't speak the truth then. So I want to encourage you on this. I want to encourage you to find little things that you can speak the truth of to one another in ways that are very helpful. Let me give you an example. If you're a husband, you're married, you have a wife, your wife, you're married, you have a husband, right? In that context, little, little conversations of truth in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, on the way home are so helpful and routine, can become so routine that they can build in you a habit of truth-telling. In other words, if you as a husband respect your wife and care for her, simply in the morning, on the way out, saying, hey, honey, I haven't told you in a while, here's why I love you so much. And we're Your husband comes home, hey, honey, just want to tell you, you're putting in a lot of time at work, a lot of effort. I just want to tell you, I appreciate you for how you provide for us. We're off. Kids going to school. Hey, I want to talk to you, my son, my daughter, and tell you this. I'm proud of who you're becoming. Have a great day at school. I want to tell you as my boss, thanks for leading this company. I know it's hard. You have a lot of decisions to make. Thanks for what you're doing. I want to tell you as a family member, hey, things have been tough here in our family, but I want you to know, I love you, and I'm so glad I'm a part of our family. Okay, little moments of truth that you speak become habits that you develop, where you speak the little moments of truth and the bigger moments of truth that becomes default behavior, secondhand to you to say, hmm, this is the truth, and this is what I'm going to speak. All right. Thirdly, I want to say this, that you can impact the future by telling the truth in the present. You can impact the future by telling the truth in the present, and this is probably the biggest why should I care um, answer for me at all. If you're sitting here thinking, this is great, but why does this matter? Why does it matter to speak the truth in the moments that are hard? Why does it matter to speak the truth when it could cost me a lot? And here's why. Because you have the opportunity to impact the future by what you do and what you say in the present. And I believe God uses people to do that. That God will use you or use me to speak the truth in a tough moment, and that speaking that can impact the future in a way that you can never anticipate. Daniel did that, and he spoke the truth to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar, and then he also said to the king, be pleased to accept my advice. Be pleased to accept my advice. Here's what it is. I think you, O king, should repent of your sin. Confess, and here's what you've done. In other words, I hope that right now in the present, by me telling you this, it will impact your future. And he says, and who knows? Perhaps, maybe, you know, this may not happen. That there's a future that can be different. And so as you think about these moments of truth, they could be in your marriage, in your work, in your relationships with people at school, right? They could be in, in, uh, in any context in which you look and say, it will cost me something to speak the truth now. It will cost me something to speak to someone what I'm really feeling, what I'm really thinking, what I'm really saying. It'll cost me something. As you speak those words of truth to people, to one another, you can help create a future that is both different for you and for this other person. 
that otherwise may not be there. You can have an impact on the future by what you speak in the present. And this is what Daniel did. This was his opportunity in the, in the spotlight of that moment to speak the truth and to speak it clearly, speak it freely, and to speak it courageously. And this is the tough challenge. For Daniel, he was, he was terrified. He was terrified of what might be. And yet he stepped right into that moment and said, okay, let me tell you the truth. And let me give you some advice. Here's what I think that you should do with that. Oh, that we would be people who despite our fear and despite the, the terror and anxiety that we feel, when we know what we should do, when we know the conversations we should have, that we can, not just because it's the right idea, not just because it develops the right relationships, but because God can use those conversations to grow faith in everybody, that we will be people who speak the truth, even when it might cost us something dearly. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful to you for the chance to look at it, to study it, to engage it together this morning. And I pray that as we live together, engage together, serve together, be the community of faith together here that we are, that you would give us great grace together, that you would give us great uh, courage and vision together, that you would give us great freedom and love for one another that you would give us courage to know what it looks like to live fearlessly, to forgive generously, and to speak openly with one another, creating that kind of place where this is normal to do, that we fear just a little bit less when it will cost us a great deal to tell the truth. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do with what we have heard. In Jesus' name we pray.